He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Join me the rest of the Munson's. Want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. This time we're going to start with Aubrey and his cadre of new fans down in Florida. How's it going over there? So of all the great things I could talk about, I'm going to focus on probably the second most important because first most important is i took my son to disney for the first time and that was great nice the second most important is about a month ago our website went down postcreditscene.com went down because we were trying to switch hosts and it was a whole thing a couple of misunderstandings the website went down it took us a month to get everything figured out create a new website we had to build an entire new website manage all of the content that we had 450 posts on the previous website, we had to kind of pick out what we wanted to do on that and bring over new stuff and re-edit it and all this kind of stuff. But the website is back and dare I say better than ever. I hope so. We've done some different things on our Instagram at the PCS blog where we're kind of just doing like mini reviews on Instagram. So it's been great. It's been exciting. It's been hectic, but all that stuff is back. So that's the main thing is go and support us, please, because we need all the help we can get. Oh, yeah, baby. If you ever need a very elementary level contribution in bullet points on some sort of a movie, I'm your guy. <laughs> we'll write that down and keep it in mind. <laughs> we say no to nothing at this point. Guest writer case. Bullet points only, though. We love collaboration. <laughs> well, speaking of guest contributor case, what about you? Work's winding down for the holidays, the end of the semester time. I'm forecasted to make a drive home to Minnesota, so that'll be exciting. And I got to say, I enjoyed the hell of that last episode, so I'm excited for tonight. James, what about you, man? Just wanted to say happy holidays, Merry Christmas, New Year's coming up. For Christmas, my daughter, she's obsessed with shoes, absolutely obsessed with shoes. And we got our boots that light up. Ooh! It's been almost 48 straight hours of her wearing these boots, and we can't get her to take them off other than sleep. And they have to be like next to her crib so she can look at them. And her feet are all fucked up. And so like, we have to like figure out a way to have her regress with object permanence and hide these shoes somewhere because they're too loved of a gift at this point where she's developing serious blisters. They're not meant for all day, every day use. <laughs> so it's part of the growing process of being a parent. Did you get a daddy matching pair as well? No, no. Oh, dang it. Christmas for me and my wife at this point is mostly just like, yeah, let's, I guess, buy that furniture. Like it's not, it's no mom and dad gifts at the moment. It's gifts for her. And then like, how do we make the house look nice? What I'm hearing is that there's actually an untapped market for like baby Dr. Scholl's. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, you know, do we just need a good pair of inserts and she's good. There absolutely is. Cause at this point it's either like we wear moccasins or we wear shoes that are like, I don't know. Are these good for her feet? I don't know. You second guess everything as a parent. My world, I, I want to apologize in advance. If I fall asleep, it's because I took a red eye last night for the first time as an adult human. I did my best to sleep on the plane, and I went straight to work and worked a very long day. And I'm here, and I'm excited, but I'm going to crash so hard when we're done. So if I drift off, I need someone to like text me and wake my ass up. We'll do our best, Kyle. 
How would we know to transition if you fell asleep? <laughs> you'll, you'll figure it out. We would just keep talking about the same movie? Just to see how long we can keep going. The, the new game is how long can we keep Kyle up? <laughs> 45 minutes of planetarium. Oh, About as long as I watched. We're excited to bring back Mark Yerke. According to his bio, there is unrest in the Galactic Senate. Several thousand solar systems have declared their intentions to leave the Republic. This separatist movement under the leadership of the mysterious Count Dooku has made it difficult for the limited number of Jedi Knights to maintain peace and order in the galaxy. Senator Amidala, the former Queen of Naboo, is returning to the Galactic Senate to vote on the critical issue of creating an army of the Republic to assist the overwhelmed Jedi. <laughs> a, a wrinkle, because this man has been here four times before. Yeah. For Chris Tucker, Emily Blunt, Angela Bassett, and Christoph Waltz, and he's always keeping us on our toes. Welcome back, Yerky. Thanks. Ready to talk about Mini Driver. <laughs> I didn't see Goodwill Hunting in the show notes. You've been busy since the last time you were here with all that uh, intergalactic politics. Look, I don't understand. Who in their right mind would go from queen to senator? <laughs> like poly, I was a political science major. Like something happened on the side. They're like, we got to get rid of her. <laughs> anyway, thanks for having me back. Well, speaking of back, you left to go to Boise State for a little bit. Now you're back in the job. It's like a full circle Yerky we got going on over here. Yeah, I was looking actually at the old bio. Last time you had me, it was like new job. I was like, cool. <laughs> but yeah, back in the old gig. It's nice. It was actually last Monday. It was my last day at Boise State. And then uh, the next day was my first day. back. <laughs> so it took a real long, fun employment. But it's been great. That's The team is wonderful. And I'm excited to, excited to be back in the saddle. Awesome, dude. I feel like it gives you some more balance so you can do more Munson's episodes. That's what's really important about this. Ooh. That's what I told him when I was negotiating. I was like, I really, I've got this idea for baby soul inserts. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm just going to need all the time. I had a new fan today ask me, uh, he's my investment guy at work. And he was like, he's super into movies. He's like, I'm interested in your podcast. What episode should I start with? And I recommended the Emily Blunt episode with you so no pressure god that's where that's where he's starting you want him to keep listening yep all right i don't make great decisions given we just talked about my red eye choice so here we are well we'll aim to have it be a top 70 episodes i think think we can do it episode 94 let's rock and roll fellas birthdays for december 28th we have three goodies. I think three goodies. I threw them out into the chat earlier today. Hopefully everybody got a chance to soul search some of these ages. So first and foremost, we got the GOAT, Denzel Washington, one of the greats. If he ever gets selected, I mean, the man's going to get no lower than a 97 or 98 from this podcast. We just know that's going to happen. Been around forever. He's done a little bit of everything, has some of the best speeches in film history, and is just an all-around great guy. How old is Denzel turning on the 28th? Okay, Denzel. 61. 66. I love to start. I was going to say 65. I'm going 70. I believe Aubrey said 66. He's turning 69, so Case just missed it. That's exactly what I was going to say, but then I was like, these guys are going to give me shit about saying 69, so I'm just not going to do it. (laughs) Number two, we have Sienna Miller. I don't know if she's the most famous actress in the world, But she's gorgeous. I think she's one of the most gorgeous people on the planet. And she's a decent actress from the things I've seen her in. And so I just thought about throwing her on there. So how old is Sienna Miller? I'd say underrated. I think she's pretty underrated. 
Yes. What is she in? I don't know who she is. I don't either. <laughs> well, if you Google it, you might see an A. So I'll just, I'll just sacrifice myself. I'm just going to go 38. My sacrifice. I don't know who she is. Not a terrible guess. What is she in? She's the wife in American Sniper. That is true. It's probably the biggest thing that she's in. God, that's kind of an older movie. And now I'm... I think I'm screwed. Was that with Bradley Cooper? It is with the Coop. Yes. Okay. Probably her best role was American Woman a couple years, like five years ago now. She was in 21 Bridges. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Chad. Live by Night. Lost City of Z. She was in Foxcatcher. Black Mass. Foxcatcher. The highly underrated Burnt. Yep. Give me 35. Give me 42. I just know her name. Like all the movies you're mentioning I've seen and I cannot picture this woman. Is she, did she like... Date someone super famous. Like, why do I know this name? I'll go with 40. Aubrey wins again. She's turning 42 on the dot. Aubrey knows his actors. Definitely winning the next one. Uh, All right. Last but not least, former Munson Maggie Smith. Oh. Been in all the things. Legend. Including one of Aubrey's favorites, where she plays the uh, matriarch. Maggie Smith's been in about everything you could think of. Still one of our highest scoring Munsons. The Dowager Countess. I mean, Down Abbey, great show. She's up there. Yeah. <laughs> Trying not to be. Yeah. <laughs> if by up there you mean she's 30, then that's exactly what I was thinking, Case. Hint, she's old. I'm going to go 92. Oh my God. 89. I don't think she looks a day over 30. She's killing it. I think you're right there, but I'm going to guess 92. <laughs> Aubrey with the $1 guess. I respect it. I'm going to say 88 just to try to sneak in there. It doesn't matter because she is turning 89, so James wins that one on the dot as well. Dang. Would have never guessed. Two out of three perfect guesses, too. Pretty impressive. The first one in a while. I can't tell you on the last time I guessed someone's age right. And that goes in my personal life as well. (laughs) Happy birthday to all those individuals and anybody else who has a birthday on the 28th. Episode 94, as we mentioned, we have five actors that we threw onto the wheel. The aforementioned Mini Driver, Elizabeth Moss, Leah Seydoux, Dermot Mulroney. As we said, this is one of the best wheels I think we've seen. But it didn't matter because those four solid choices did not make the cut. The wheel selected Natalie Portman. She has 71 acting credits. She's produced 14 different projects, and she has directed four different projects. So she's done a little bit of everything over the years. Also some theater work and some shorts work on the SNL side. So we're going to dig into it. We'll cover as much as we can. We don't cover every little piece if you're new to the podcast, but we try to give a pretty good overview of their career on and off the screen. So before we get into it, though, we always start with James to see if he can stump us with some trivia, Fast and Furious style. Yeah, so you guys are part of the initiated and you know the deal, but for people new to listening at home, I'm going to read off three facts here. Two of them are going to be true about Natalie Portman. One of them isn't going to be true about Natalie Portman, but is going to be true about one of the many illustrious cast members of the Fast and Furious franchise. Gentlemen here are going to guess which one that is. Fact number one, she was discovered by a modeling agent in a pizza parlor at the age of nine. Fact number two, she auditioned for an off-Broadway musical about a girl who is prepared to commit murder to get the lead in a school play. And while she didn't get the role, she was chosen as an understudy alongside future pop star Britney Spears. Fact number three, she holds a record for the second largest Best Actress Award sweep, 40 wins for one role, following only Kate Blanchett, who has 41 wins for her performance as Jasmine French in Blue Jasmine. I'm going to take the shortcut, and I'm going to say all three are true, James. I'm not willing to try to pit a uh, Fast and Furious star into any of those three, so all three are about Portman. You're wrong. One's about Ludacris. (laughs) 
seeing as I've seen just as many Fast and Furious movies as the last several appearances I've made on Buzz, <laughs> that I was really hoping for Pace would name an anybody a person. I think it's fact three is the lie, and that is the woman who actually married Chris Hemsworth, considering he, her and Chris worked together on multiple Thor films. And that's Elsa Pataki, noted award winner. I mean, she's been nominated a million times for her acting chops. So it's got to be Elsa. Doesn't sound right. Doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to go back to, and I'm going to go with some inspiration from our conversation earlier this week. And I'm going to choose star of Too Fast, Too Furious in legendary battle rapper MC Jen. <laughs> nice. MC Jen. <laughs> yeah, what a name drop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing by James's reply, that is definitely not it. He was shocked. Oh my God, I forgot he was even in that movie. I'm going to add him. I got to figure out more about Jin and get him on there. You're right. Well, that's on me. I get it. I get like those like child models, right? But I still like don't like the idea of like some scouting person just leering at a nine-year-old Natalie Portman in a pizza parlor. So I'm going to say that's the lie and that it's actually, I want this to be true, Jason Momoa. Because I feel like, Finding a little nine-year-old Jace Momoa with just like the angriest of eyebrows and the longest, greasiest hair <laughs> feels a little bit less salacious. So you're cool with agents creeping on young boys, but not young girls. I got you. I hear you. It's understood. It's understood. If it's Jason Momoa, sure. Okay. Well, I mean, he was probably just shirtless and just climbing all over shit. I mean, I can only imagine nine-year-old <laughs> Aquaman 2 star Jason Momoa. Of all the people to guess, that, that's a pretty good guess because yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he used his modeling resume and lied about acting and was like, no, I could totally act and just like showed up. So that's a good guess. Cause I think he was like a teenager when that was happening, but all right. So everyone here guessed. And I will say that uh, fact number one is true. She was discovered at the age of nine. So she's from Syosset, Long Island, not a big deal. One of us. Natalie Portman was discovered at the age of nine by a scout for Revlon who approached her at a pizza parlor in Syosset, asked if she'd be interested in modeling. She said, no, but I would like an agent. She was obviously with her parents when this happened. And she said she wanted to act. Her parents were absolutely opposed to her acting. But I guess when a complete stranger says it, you know, like, you know, preying on a child, they're like, oh, all right, well, maybe if you think if you think she could do it. Fact number two, she auditioned for a Broadway musical. And that is true. Uh, so she auditioned for a 1992 off-Broadway musical called Ruthless. It's about a girl who prepared to commit murder to get to lead in school play. She didn't get it. And she was understudied, chosen with the young Britney Spears. Both of them were understudies for the star, who is Laura Bell Bundy, who apparently has had a very prolific career in stage. But when Britney Spears and Natalie Portman are your understudies, you're always going to be their footnote as opposed to the other way, because that is an impressive group of kids uh, applying for roles. And James, before you transition, I did see in an interview, she said she never met Britney Spears because Britney Spears got hired for the Mickey Mouse Club and she took over for her. It makes sense. Natalie is probably a better actor. I'll give her that credit over Britney Spears. But, you know, Britney Spears probably a little better dancer and singer. They hosted a New Year's Eve party together. Years later. That's right. I learned that on Hot Ones. <laughs> and fact number three was the lie. And while Natalie actually holds the record for the third largest Best Actress sweep. She got 38 wins for her role as Nina Sayers in Black Swan. It's Fast and Furious star Helen Mirren, who has 40 wins for one role. Not for her performance as Magdalene Shaw in the ninth installment as Fast and Furious, as you might think, but her portrayal as Queen Elizabeth <laughs> uh, in The Queen. And that follows only Kate Blanchett, who's got 41 wins for one role in Blue Jasmine. I love it. Those are great. Always good, James. 
All right, Case, tell us a little bit about our snapshot in box office history. I'm going to be interested. A couple of interesting points on this one, and I'll start with the most outlandish. Doing some research, I found her booking agency, Celebrity Talent International, and I thought, oh, I wonder if we were to get her on the podcast tonight and really chop it up with her. The example fee to book Natalie Portman is in the starting range of 500000 to 750000 so I'm a little light on cash because of the holidays. So unfortunately, I couldn't pull that off tonight. I'll cover you, dude. <laughs> so I thought that was crazy. Then I'm regretting not looking that up on other performers we've had because it'd be, it'd be curious to see what those booking fees were. The other interesting thing that I found as I typed in most of the movies on the spreadsheet, I put them in chronologically ordered. I, in my head, remember her from most of these movies, but I don't remember them in the right order. Outside of like Heat and Beautiful Girls, when she's clearly a young performer, after that, like I was shocked that Star Wars was so early in her career. But speaking of the numbers specifically, she came out like a shot out of a cannon. Her first 10, 11, 12 movies somewhere in there, only one of them lost money. Then you flip to the other side of her career where she's doing more passion projects. Her last 10 or 11 movies, it's hard to find movies that made money. Mm. And what I love about it is it seems like she's got that money now from her major big box office projects and a lengthy career that she can do projects that she really believes in and, and is interested in. So I really appreciated that arc of her career. Getting into the numbers specifically, She's got the sixth largest budget we've looked at, 34th average budget, box office money made. Star Meter currently is, she's third. She's got a 60 on the Star Meter ranking right now. Her critic and fan ranking is the one that kind of surprised me. She's 39th and 41st critic and fan ranking with a 58.8 critic and a 60.5 fan. And then she's 33rd and 10 in uh, two different box office metrics, the number 10 being the 10th best performing movie we've had on return on investment in which she shared the screen with Mila Kunis in Black Swan. Anybody want to take a guess at where she ranked against all other performers? Before you started that, I would have probably voted higher, but based on some of the numbers you just gave me, I'm going to guess in the 40s. Yeah, that's probably where I'd be somewhere in there. Mid-30s. Go 50 just to keep it interesting. All right. 18th. Dang. Okay, never mind. Well, she's got some big numbers in there, boys. She's got some big numbers. I liked her way before this episode, and I'm, I'm excited to talk more about her tonight and hear what you guys think. She does a lot of French stuff, doesn't she? She wants to become a French citizen. I know that. They ought to just do it. They ought to just be like, yep, you're in. You know, very rarely do we run into the first major role as their first movie role ever, so this... The early days before a first major role is truly just like life stuff. I'll pepper some pieces. James is our expert in all things personal life. I'm sure he'll fill in some gaps or correct me where I'm wrong. But she was born Natalie Hirschlag in Jerusalem in 1981. Usually I don't include stuff about their parents, but I think her parents' roles are just so funny. Her mom is her agent and her dad is a, is a gynecologist. I just think that combo is really funny. I don't know why. But usually it's the most boring professions ever for a parent. And I just think a 
her agent gynecologist. It just makes me giggle. So I threw that one out there. I love it, Kyle. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're right. Gynecologists are funny. When I read it, I wanted to imagine, I read it as was an agent, like a secret agent. Oh. And so I was like, man, like these are, nope. these are some really sexy, sexy occupations. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. <laughs> Except for one's a gynecologist. And Mr. and Mrs. Smith, was that Brett? Was that his job? He was a gynecologist? gynecologist maybe. It's the hottest gynecologist ever. <laughs> An attractive man. James mentioned earlier that she grew up in Long Island, but before she was in Long Island, born in Jerusalem, moved to D.C., they moved to Connecticut, and eventually moved to Long Island by 1990. So by the time she was nine, she was on the island, baby, in James's neck of the woods. Her native language is Hebrew, not a shock given where she was born, and also not a shock given the the black swan connection that we'll talk about. She studied ballet and dance at a young age and did a ton with the arts in her early days. To James's point, she was spotted by that agent, that Revlon agent at a pizza parlor in 91, so at the age of 10. She was also part of an environmentally friendly band as a background dancer that they performed at the United Nations when she was a young person, which, hey... That's fun. That's a wrinkle. Do you think Edgar Ramirez was there? He was involved with the United <laughs> Nations. Maybe. <laughs> I feel like that's like the most like upper middle class white shit that I've heard in a while. <laughs> <laughs> dancing at the United Nations. Yep. In a in a, an eco-friendly no, band. Not just dancing in an environmentally friendly. Yeah, this is like, I mean, this is. Eco-friendly. And this was in the 90s, right? This is like before that shit was cool. Before vegan was cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So those were the early days. But her first major role was in 94's Leon the Professional plays Matilda, a film that is generally pretty beloved by fans. James drew this review. I had never seen Leon the Professional. I've heard of it. I'd seen the cover before. I think it was on like the American Film Institute's like top 100 of all time. And so it had pretty high praise. Um, the movie came out in 1994. It's got a critic score on Rotten Tomatoes of 74% and an audience score of 95%. And it is written and directed by Luc Besson, uh, who's done a couple other movies, but this is definitely his most successful one. The plot of this movie is after father, stepmother, stepsister, and little brother, that's four people, are killed by her drug-dealing father's employer, the 12-year-old daughter, portrayed by Natalie Portman, manages to take refuge in the apartment of a professional hitman, played by Jean Reno, who at her request teaches her the methods of his job so that she can take revenge on the corrupt DEA agent played by a batshit insane Gary Oldman, who ruined her life and she wants to get revenge for killing her beloved brother. The movie has some like classic early 90s action cheesiness to it with how it's filmed, which I'm, I'm a fan of, I've always been a fan of, but if that's not your thing, I can see you not liking how this movie's filmed. I will say that almost immediately the story teeters on a very uncomfortable relationship between a seasoned hitman and a 12-year-old girl who's way too mature for her age, mm -hmm. who is like openly and out loud telling him that she's falling in love with him. And I think the only reason that this movie works is because of how good the acting is between the three main stars. I think the actual direction of this movie and some of the writing does leave a lot to be desired. But the three main stars of the movie absolutely crush their roles. Jean Reno as Leon has like this unflappable moral code, which really does help put the audience like at ease and relaxed a little bit because you know he's only going to do the right thing despite this little girl who's desperate for safety, kind of throwing herself at him. 
And Gary Oldman as the scumbag DEA agent is cranking his craziness up to like the max level. And he's delightful when he does that. I think Gary Oldman rocks in general, but when he's like going for full batshit insane, I think might be when he's at his best uh, because I loved him in this role. I loved him in Fifth Element. Like when he's going to the full loony bin, I think he's amazing. Finally, I don't think this movie works at all if it wasn't for... 11-year-old actress at the time in her first major role, Natalie Portman. Uh, She's absolutely incredible in this movie. It would completely fall apart if it wasn't for her. She looks like she's an acting savant, you know, crying. She's pulling all the emotional strings. She plays it so well in that, like, there's an innocence to it. Like, she's obviously had a tough life, and, like, you can tell that she's making it seem like, you know, she's tough and mature, but she's not. And I think it works really well. I think if any of those three actors didn't do such a good job, I think this movie isn't as successful as it was at the time. It was enjoyable, and it's weird, and it's unique, and I very much enjoyed watching it. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. For an 11-year-old to command the screen like that in her first ever movie role, not having done TV, not having done a TV movie, I was blown away. I was like, holy shit. And she's still so good today. It just go high up on my Munson meter. Well, you get a lot of experience in Revlon ads. <laughs> They've been known as a real training ground for actors. Everyone knows you find good actors at the pizza parlor. That's that's where you find your best talent. <laughs> on that note, I mean, because so much, so much of the film is like these super intimate close-ups on everyone. And, and yeah, I mean, I think she hangs. And to hang with Gary Oldman is just incredible. So, yeah. This was my first time watching this, too. And this was one of those I got to scratch off a movie that I wanted to watch for a really long time because I've heard all the same great things. It's also really weird when you hear her talk about it and she says that it was like worse and like her parents negotiated some stuff out of it. Yeah. Like, I don't want to see what the original intent of this movie was, but it's the three performances. That's what it is. Those three. I would watch like a Gene Reno hitman movie. Like that is a like I'd watch the prequel to this just because I thought what he was doing was so interesting. And then just it's the rare time that you see her act and you go, okay, yeah, she's been one of the best since she started. Like it's God given. Yeah. It's just one of those things because it is it is those intimate close ups. It is like giving off a lot of emotion without saying anything. It's like portraying genuine fear or whatever it is it's it's a real authentic emotion that she's able to to portray it seems effortless without a ton of training yeah you just kind of watch it and you're in awe like oh it all makes sense now like i've seen a lot of her movies and i was like oh i get it now okay Mm -hmm. she's just one of those people where she's just great at this thing all right cool she said one of the reasons why she thinks she was able to do so well in it is that you know the people on set were incredibly supportive. They trusted her and they let her take as many takes as possible. But she also says like, I was so young that like I didn't have any of like the normal preteen self doubt when all of these adults were like, yeah, take as long as you want, do what you need. She's like, I really got to like ham it up, and I didn't realize what was going on. She said if she was older. Uh, which she was for some other movies, which I thought was interesting that she said that because maybe she feels that way about the other movies, even though she didn't name drop them. But she did say, if I was older, I would have probably more self-doubt and the performance wouldn't have been as good. A hell of a start for her, for a career, a movie that people are still talking about years later and a showcase of her talents early on. What's hilarious is after that movie, what does she do? She like has to go to school. (laughs) do like kid stuff right so she takes a i mean a little bit of a break there for a year or so to just like do some shorts do some theater do some school stuff but then she returns to the screen in 95's heat 
alongside Treo and uh, Dennis Haysbert. So we've talked about it a few times. Her role is pretty small. She plays uh, Pacino's stepdaughter. Stepdaughter, and she's good at it. She is, but she's a pain in the ass. She is a pain in the ass. But you don't go to this movie for Portman, Haysbert, or Treo. No. You go for Pacino and De Niro in their bag. Yeah, a movie that walks so the town could run. Not a ton of screen time, but she nails it and what she needs to do to show the tension between parenting. There's a pretty dramatic scene with her character almost committing suicide. Yeah. Important role for that, even though not a ton of screen time. Well, the, the director of this film was so impressed by her in The Professional in 94, for obvious reasons, that he brought her in to play Marty alongside Matt Dillon in 96's Beautiful Girls. I remember we talked about it on the Matt Dillon episode, and I, this is before I knew we were covering Natalie Portman, and I was like, Natalie Portman shines in this role, which again is, is another sexualized role in ways, because she plays a young girl who is aggressively flirting with an older man, played by Timothy Hutton, but she is so charming and so magnetic on screen for being 15 years old, 14. She's great in this movie. Do you guys remember the story about why this movie was written? Remind us. The writer of this is the same guy that wrote Con Air. Right. And while he was waiting to see if Con Air got greenlit, he was back in his hometown in Massachusetts hanging out with his buddies. And then he just like started writing this story. It's also notable because it's where Sweet Caroline sing-along originated. That's right. It's not a bad flick. Matt Dillon plays like a sleazy friend. He's like a womanizer in that. I remember that very clearly. And she's she's very, very charming as the next the girl next door. So it's it's a cool role. And again, but another sexualized role early on in her career. Yeah, she's great in this movie. Same year, she's in that that only movie from her early career that lost some money. Everyone says I love you alongside Natasha Leone and Tim Roth. I remember the Natasha Leone episode where I learned for the first time that her and Natasha Leone had like a rivalry. I did not know that was the case. I remember when Corey told us that, and I, I thought that was really interesting. Well, that's also our most listened to episode. So if anything's going to stick, it's going to be that that damn episode too. Well, same year. I mean, she got busy in 96. I mean, she's got a ton of stuff going on, including her uh, her role as another uh, daughter character in Mars Attack. She plays Taffy, the, uh, the president's daughter. Christina Applegate's in it for like a hot second. And she's in it a little bit, but you don't really go there for her. I will rewatch it because that movie's just wacky as shit. And I, I think the vision's fascinating. And it makes me laugh every time I watch it. Good grief. She has acted with some gigantic actors so far in her career. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just looking at Mars Attack cast. On top of that, you've got the, the incredible cast from Heat. She hit the jackpot early. Mars Attack is Tim Burton, right? Yep. Jack Nicholson, Annette Benning, I mean, just boom, Danny DeVito. Mm-hmm. Good grief. Big cast in that one. Also, 96, she was originally going to be in Romeo and Juliet with Leo DiCaprio, the modern day interpretation. But I read that after they cast her, just determined she was going to, she's a little too young for the role that they need to cast. So instead, Claire Danes. Too young for Leo. Probably the <laughs> only person in history. The only time that's ever been stated. Sorry. What I think is cool is, you know, in her career, she plays roles either on screen or off screen that tie to her Jewish heritage. And the first big one I noted is she played Anne Frank in Diary of Anne Frank on Broadway between like the latter half of 97 and the early half of 98. It's a huge role. 16, 17 year old to play Anne Frank on Broadway. Yeah. 
massive. I assume nobody saw it, but that's okay. I missed that particular showing, but <laughs> if anybody at a, as a 16-year-old is going to pull it off, I mean, it's definitely Portman. She's incredible. Came out incredible. She's been running ever since. Incredible. A lot of respect for that. And I also, it seemed like she does a ton, a ton of research for her roles. And I, I saw a lot of it coming out here. I mean, not a shock considering where she goes to school a few years later too, and what she's able to accomplish during her high school and college years. And then the big one that both earned her kind of her first entry into like big time box office, but also got her first Razzie nomination, her role as Queen Amidala slash Padme Naberi in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, 1999. What's the hate for the Razzie? What did they not like? Worst on-screen couple was the Razzie nom. I think it was the film. I think it was the just the film. The Razzies did clickbait before clickbait was a thing. Oh, that's true. Hey, everyone hates this movie. You know how everyone will pay attention to the Razzies if we say it sucks. It's like, sick, man. It's like, she's not what's wrong with the movie. <laughs> I believe that's exactly how the conversations go. <laughs> <laughs> she's fine. There's nothing wrong with her performance in this poorly written and directed film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like that's what it is. Rewatching it as an adult, like what this movie really solidifies for me is that George Lucas is not a dialogue writer. He is a big picture guy. And you need those with movies, right? He's got the story in his head. But like he needs someone who can actually write because that's not what his skill set is. It, the clearest day difference between the first three and the next three is like, oh, yeah, this is what happens when like, you don't have Spielberg helping you out. It's like, yeah, dude, I got the vision. I'm going to do like a five minute monologue on sand. Be like, no, nah, dude, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work, man. Except for Dune. Loved their two-hour monologue on sand. (laughs) (laughs) I think by the third one, the effects were pretty great, and it was doing some pretty cool stuff. But like the same way that the original trilogy pioneered practical effects, and I think they held up insanely well, this tried to pioneer CGI effects, and they just haven't held up. They look terrible. And they're overused. And there's so many things right now where it's like, my God, I wish you used a puppet, please. And again, none of that has to do anything with Portman. She's fine. Everyone's fine in this movie. Liam Neeson's wooden as shit, and he's fine. But it's because of the writing and the directing. It's like the worst time for visual effects, though. Yeah. So like all, almost every movie from this time period is hard to rewatch. Oh, there, one other movies came out. That leaned into visual effects. The visual effects heavy ones have, they had a hard time holding up. Oh man, Godzilla 2000. Yes. The mummy. Oh, don't you hit on the mummy. That's a cinematic masterpiece. Almost on, almost to the liking is a deep blue sea. It's pretty close. Uh, no, dude, the mummy is the Aquaman one of the 90s. Nothing's as good as deep blue sea. <laughs> I think this was the second movie to hit a billion dollars behind Titanic. I got it at 1.3 billion. Damn international audience you know once we pull them in yeah over 50 percent of the box office from this came international part of me wonders if that's like again this was internationally like the first star wars oh yeah right and so like that magic that was like captured like you know from the original trilogy domestically like this is that first time and and i could just again minds blown right just what is this world it's all in context with stuff like this what I find fascinating is Natalie's opinion and how much she's willing to talk about this over the years and how that arc has gone. Because she clearly over the years has made it very clear she doesn't love to talk about this role. 
<laughs> really? Very rarely does she seem excited to talk about Padme and Queen Amidala. And I just find it entertaining with Natalie's rap 2.0, where she's like, listen, say something about the prequels. Like, I'm tired of hearing it. I'm t- absolutely tired of hearing people tell me how awful they are. So I just think that part's fascinating. I also wouldn't be surprised if this was the first role where she was like probably on a pretty short leash for what she could and could not say about the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I I love what was touched on earlier. Again, that like that freedom that she had in Leon as, as not only a young actress, but also like a relative like indie flick. And then here you step into like the machine and it's just like, you do the shows and you say the things and yep. Yeah, that's true. That's a great point. And don't spoil anything. We got so much money tight. Like you're not allowed to answer certain questions. Yeah. It's, it's probably pretty tough. but it's a different thing if you're like excited and you're a fan and you go to the award shows and talk about it. But if you don't care at all and you're constantly being asked about like, say you don't care about Marvel and superheroes and you get asked all these questions about crossovers, you're going to be like, it's just a movie. It's a paycheck, man. I don't, I don't really care that much, but you can't say that <laughs> on the red carpet. Do you guys think that her performance in star Wars episode one warranted her getting a scholarship to Harvard? Cause I feel like that's probably what did it. I didn't hurt. I mean, yeah, the movie made a yeah. billion dollars. Like <laughs> Harvard wants cool alumni. Yeah. Star Wars. Is there, how do you, sp- is there two S's in Star Wars? I can't remember. The prestigious Phantom Menace grant <laughs> provided in 1999. Yes. 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 <laughs> the Force Scholarship. You know, I'm applying with my, my volleyball and my after school activity of, uh, <laughs> student government and she's getting Razzie nominations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big difference. So she graduates high school after that in 99 and then she does one more film there before the millennium with Susan Sarandon and got her first like big award recognition, got a Golden Globe nom for Anywhere But Here. She played Anne. Apparently pretty good. I didn't see it. Her role I hear is pretty solid, but I don't know about the film. Largest audience gap so it came out in 2000 is Where the Heart Is. I was interested in rewatching this because I saw it many, many moons ago. Rewatching? Uh, this was a rewatch. That's crazy. Wow. I don't remember much from this movie other than she has the baby in the Walmart. And I remember Ashley Judd is in the movie. And that's about it. And I don't remember hating it, but that was also when I was like 11. So it was a long time ago. It came out in 2000. I was 12 at that time. So right around that time. Not quite the critical eye that I would have these days at watching films. So boy, did my opinion on this film change. It's based on a book by the same name, and there apparently was another movie with the same name released in 90, 1990, featuring Uma Thurman. I, that, uh, that I did not know. I did not watch that one for research. Portman plays Novelty Nation, a young pregnant girl who is abandoned at a Walmart by her asshole boyfriend and chooses to live secretly in the Walmart until she has her baby, of which she names Americus. A-M-E-R-I-C-U-S. Americus. What a choice. This sounds like a Walmart advertisement. You're taking words out of my mouth. Kyle, so far I'm shocked the critics didn't love this, the way you're going about this. I want to hear where it goes south. Again, these days, it feels like they could say, this is the movie no one wants you to see. I also forgot that Keith David is in this movie. He plays a character named Moses White Cotton, another wild name. Yeah. He plays a photographer who just like shows up and wants to take her photo or take her baby's photo. His character provides almost no value in the film but he's i love keith david so that was i guess my shining moment of this movie the writing was really 
Not great. I also read that they had to remove the Queen Amidala merchandise from the Walmart so as to not be too meta <laughs> while they're filming this movie because obviously Star Wars was a huge thing at the time. So that's hilarious. I didn't even think about that. That is funny. It sounds like a missed opportunity. <laughs> Cross promotion. They could have been like, you got to get down to your local Walmart for the latest Queen Amidala <laughs> battle rider. I genuinely didn't remember anything about this movie after the birth. The interest level just disappears after the birth. The only thing that Ashley Judd's character, her character, Aubrey will speak to this. She has five kids. She's like weirdly sage and wisdom driven, but also is like the writing makes her seem like the hottest mess of a relationship person possible. She gets like beat up really badly at one point in the movie. And that's kind of like one of the main things it's known for. And so that was interesting. But there's an innocence and a charm with Natalie Portman's character. But it's just failed by this like TV movie plot that just wanes in interest by the end. And uh, just Ashley Judd being written with six kids and zero hope is just not a, a, a female character, I think. It tries to be redeeming, but it, it kind of cuts itself down in the process. What's supposed to be a cute story about a girl rising above her circumstances is really a two-hour advertisement for Walmart and the value of birth control. That is my review. And I am firmly on the side of the critics on this one. Why did she do this movie? I think she wanted something different. I know, but it's just, it seems like such a weird left turn. Cause like we said, it's like she did, she had done so much, like kind of tied back to her like Jewish heritage. And, and now she's like making a billion dollar movie with star Wars. It's not like that was a surprise. I guess that's my biggest thing is like, I don't understand why she did this. Movie. I know she loves Ashley Judd and really values that relationship. So she at least came away with that friendship and they're both like pretty active in the women's empowerment space. So, that's cool for. Yeah, cool. All right. It could also be like intentionally for that reason where it's, I don't want to be the Star Wars girl forever. You talked about this movie for much longer than I think any person should. <laughs> There's two movies in Natalie Portman research that I did not finish, which again, I will always state is a hard thing for me to do to not finish a movie. This is one of them. I stopped watching it because it was just comically bad and I had other things to do. I don't understand anything about this movie. The why did it get made? It was a real story, wasn't it? Yeah, it's based on a real story. Based on a book. The same name. That to me is the explanation as to why she did it. If it was a real story and the story and the real story was compelling, that's probably why she did it. Generally, if I see a great actor or if I even see a good actor doing a movie that is just like obviously bad, I just assume that the screenplay was better than the finished product. I can't assume that with this movie. So I'm just assuming that the story was the original story. The real life story was better than this one. I can't speak to the Ashley Judd stuff. Cause I only saw a little bit of it. I, I just don't think this movie's very good. It's real bad. So I just stopped watching it. I think Natalie Portman is she's in it and I don't put, I don't count it against her. She's not the problem with the movie. Mm -mm. In defense of the book, it was part of Oprah's book club. That's probably why I got made. At that time, then, yeah, that's why she made it. Portman's trying to be buddies with Oprah at this time. I don't blame her. There we go. We found it. Good job, team. We uncovered the reason. Yeah, don't go watch it. If the movie was better, I think she's at that point in her career. She's still young enough to where she needs someone to help access what is obvious, the obvious natural talent that she has. The stuff around her is better, then she'll be a lot better. But I'm not 100% sure she's in the stage of her career at this point where she's going to make something bad good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
which is really hard to do in movies in general because she's got some duds mm-hmm. and she's great. So it's not, it's, this is a movie that I would just say I'll never think about again in reference to Natalie Portman or anything else, even Walmart. Until the Joan Cusack episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're the hardest. There you go. And it's not streaming free after rent this, which is even more heartbreaking. I spent four dollars. Double whammy. I kicked it right to the nuts. So we don't have another review from her for sixteen years. So we got a big chunk of stuff between oh one and twenty sixteen. First and foremost, she attended Harvard and got her psychology degree from two thousand to around two thousand three. I thought it was fascinating that she studied as a research assistant under Alan Dershowitz. Noted friend of Jeffrey Epstein, Alan Dershowitz. Yeah, that guy sucks. <laughs> that guy sucks. So he was also a member of Harvey Weinstein's defense team. All the best. Real, just great. Yeah. The man of principle, innocent until proven guilty. Okay. That's what, what it's about. a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. If there is a hell, he's going there, Kyle. <laughs> 2001, she appears as herself in a scene in Zoolander, a movie we covered in the Owen Wilson episode. Ooh, we haven't talked about it nearly enough in a 94 episode run, but maybe we'll get a chance in, in the future. Who knows? James, do you remember the part where she was in this? You're our Zoolander expert. I actually don't. I don't either. I think she appears on a, on the red carpet in like a really quick interview, if I remember correctly. Oh, that sounds right. It's a nothing role, really. Star Wars atta- Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, 2002. Two more Razzie noms, this time for a worst supporting actress and worst on-screen couple. I have to confess, my bio wasn't my bio. It was the scroll text from the start <laughs> of the, the cinematic masterpiece, Star Wars Attack of the Clones. Oh, what a relief. As much as I wish that I had gone from a sh- from shamed queen to senator, <laughs> it's not true. Uh, 2003, she... Was worked alongside Philip Seymour Hoffman, adding two more legends that she worked with on the acting side. In Cold Mountain, she played Sarah. I don't remember a ton about this movie and her role, but I just I just remember this movie being badass. I love this movie, and I'm trying to remember her in it. I was going to watch it, because this is I haven't seen this, and I've been told that it's amazing. But I was also discouraged to watch it due to time constraints, because she's not in it very much. Yeah. And the movie's very long, so I missed it. Yeah, two and a half hours, and I don't think it was streaming free anywhere either. So lots of limitations. I had to get to the, the two gems that follow this one. <laughs> 2004, she gets her first Oscar nomination for her role as Alice in Closer, a, a role that won her Best Supporting Actress Golden Globes sphere as well. I watched this movie. I was very excited to watch this movie. I did not like this movie, which I was shocked to because it's mostly people in rooms talking which is kind of like your jam. one of the descriptions of movies that I would like. And it just didn't work for me. There was something that was, to quote, one of the greatest writers that I know. There's something that just left me a little cold. I struggled to connect with the people and what was going on. And so the other elements of it weren't compelling enough to keep me. But I just, I couldn't connect with it. I couldn't, I couldn't really get in there. I think one of the reasons why you couldn't connect with it is four of the most unlikable characters possible. (laughs) It's done intentionally. I saw this movie in high school and my girlfriend at the time in high school had cheated on me. And I watched this movie in theaters. And this movie is about four people cheating on each other. And they're all very, very bitchy about it and mean to each other and very like over the top, like saying hurtful things to one another. I felt like I got punched in the stomach watching this movie. 
if that's what the writers and directors were going for, I think they nailed it. It is incredibly uncomfortable. You don't like any of the characters and you're rooting for all of them to have bad things happen to them. The problem is bad things happen to them the entire time. Uh, and it's just still not rewarding. That might be what they're going for, but I will never watch this movie again. Even though there are like a ton of sex scenes and all the main ca- actors are incredibly attractive, I'm not ever going to watch the movie again. In the IMDb trivia, I found some nuggets I thought were interesting. First and foremost, I I haven't seen this movie in a long time and I don't remember it, but apparently Natalie Portman gave Julia Roberts a necklace that said cunt and out of their characters, foul mouse. At the end of filming, Roberts gave Portman a necklace that said lil cunt, L-I-L. Wow. Cunt. So that's interesting. Uh, There's also approximately 510 questions asked between the characters that works out to around five questions per minute of runtime. That sounds exhausting. Those sound like quite the friendship bracelets. Yeah. I bet all the actors had a blast making it, but it is not a blast to watch. It's one of those movies where you're like, they're not going to do that thing. Or, oh, they did. Oh, they're going to get in trouble for that. It's like, oh, no, they're just being assholes about it. Oh, my God. And it's that for two hours. All right. Question then for the two of you who have seen it and or watched it for this. She got an Oscar nomination. Is it earned? And is she the best performance of the four? And or did somebody else earn it more than her? I'd say her and Clive Owen are the best of the four. I think she might actually be the best of the four. It's hard for me to say if she deserves an Oscar nom for it because I have consistently not done well in predicting who deserves an Oscar nom for what. But I will say that in this movie with those four huge actors, I do think she does the best, followed by Clive Owen. I would flip him. He's simultaneously the best and possibly the worst person in the movie. It's probably because of the best performance. I think I struggle with her character, not because of the performance, but because of the character. I think she's the person that we're supposed to emotionally kind of access this movie through. And she's unreliable in that sense. And so anything that's happening to her, I, I never know when she's telling the truth and when she's not telling the truth. And so that makes it, really hard to access anything that's going on. I think she is compelling because Natalie Portman is always compelling. I'd have to know who else is orbiting that race for me to determine that, but I wouldn't point to this from her performances as something that she should, that is awards worthy. Maybe this is a question for Kyle. Do you think that your distrust of her as a character in this film was a carryover from when she bamboozled you in star Wars attack of the clones? He was tricked twice. <laughs> You're like, fool me once, shame on me. Shame on you, fool me twice. <laughs> that was an awake check. Like, I wasn't out. That was, and you did a great job. Like, I didn't have to text you to see if we set your nuts on vibrate. Um, you did a great job. I appreciate you. At least somebody listened. It's important. You got your back. That's now we're even for that shitty movie you watched for me. I think Aubrey was alluding to the fact that he didn't love this film experience either, is her role in, as Sam in Garden State from 2004. Movie is bad. Who likes this movie? Thank you. No, that question is amazing. Yeah. So there's a handful of times. There's a handful of times where I watch a movie that has been widely regarded or whatever, and I just am like, okay, this is just a white guy thing. So that's what it is. I assume that was the case here, and that was going to be my question. And confirm, <laughs> as a very white guy, I think Garden State sucks and have always <laughs> thought that. So then who likes this movie? Because I don't get it. I thought this movie was was it's just poor. And what they do with her character is absolutely bizarre. It's confusing what they're trying to do with her. So I can't even really comment on her performance. I just know she 
doesn't love this movie because it was like one of those first iterations of that manic dream pixie girl archetype that like Zoe Deschanel has played a bunch. And so I don't think this is one she looks at fondly. But I know Garden State has like weirdly large pop culture relevance at the same time. So it's just odd. I think it has the pop culture relevance for two reasons. I think one, it is a kind of a twist on a coming of age story where as opposed to, you know, a guy's critique of the world, it's I'm a 20 something and the world is wrong. It's more the other way where the world is telling this guy that like he's a dipshit and he needs to wake up. I think people enjoyed the new twist. And then I think the soundtrack is, was everyone's like, Oh, I love that band. No one knows that band. Oh, I love that band. And it was just like a soundtrack you could constantly play uh, because with rewatching the movie, I think, Zach Braff's opening scene, I think, is pretty funny. I like how he kind of sets up his character as like a failure who works at a Benihana and like doesn't really know what's going on. And I, but I don't think they do any justice for her character. Her character is, is like the classic, like, she's a hot girl who's really polite and nice. And the reason she's single is unknown. And you don't need any more background. Isn't she like so nice and hot? And like it's very flat for a character. But why people love the movie, I'm not sure. I think it's those two reasons and that it was just like cool to say. Because in rewatching it, I don't think it's as bad as you guys think it is. And I will not defend <laughs> white people despite being asked to do it. <laughs> I think it's a it's passable. I, I think it's got like eighties in Rotten Tomatoes. I think I'd give it like low sixties. Yeah. It's got it's got an eighty six in Rotten Tomatoes. Eighty six, eighty eight. Yeah. I love it. This is too percentage points down from annihilation it's close it was close to being highest critic score that context is amazing what they do with her character and in the final scene puts the nail in the coffin of this she just has no agency everything about her character and her happiness wages on the fact that this if this stupid terrible person decides to be less stupid and terrible around her <laughs> and i just i think that's a hard thing to come back from We'll let Aubrey have final word on that. Sesame Street does an episode of that in 2004. We haven't seen a ton of actors do the Sesame Street over the years, so I thought that was interesting to note. And then she did the third installment of the Star Wars, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, 2005. Spoiler alert, she dies. She dies. What? If she dies. She dies from sadness. The direct quote is, she died from a broken heart oh, no. in a Walmart. <laughs> this is like an example of where like George Lucas, he's worth billions of dollars because of what he's come up with in his brain. And by the time they're coming up with a third prequel, like no one can tell him shit because everyone's afraid because they know it's going to make money. And you just need to be like, hey, you got to come up with something better than she died of a broken heart. Like, come on. He's like, no, 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 no. We're doing that. Like, sure. I think this is the best of the three prequels. Like, and I think it's a pretty wide margin. As a kid, I mean, I was like in on this. Like, I remember, I remember at my friend's house. And this was the same friend. Sorry to talk about him. He'll never watch this. Maybe he will. But he loved Garden State, and I remember like watching it begrudgingly with him like three times. I mean, like, dude, I don't fucking get this movie. But also, I remember his dad comes home with a bootleg version of Revenge of the Sith, like before it's come out. Oh shit, international criminal. Yeah, and that was like, duh, that was the coolest thing. And I just remember seeing it and it was just scrunched up because some weird compression shit happened. This was a VHS. I think Case added Free Zone, where she plays Rebecca, to the show notes. And I'm interested as to why. I did. 
you know, you guys had some unpleasant things to say about some of the movies that we've talked about so far. And this is only the second movie that's lost money in her entire career. <laughs> and the highlight of this one, though, and the reason I bring it up is because it opened with a $9,000 opening weekend, which is actually her third lowest. So she still has two more movies coming up that opened with less than $9,000. $9,000? Opening weekend. It's like an indie picture based on what I'm seeing. Is this kind of like her first, like, yep. I guess Garden State was an indie picture at the time, right? No, it was indie. I thought it had like a $2 million budget. Garden State had a $2.5 million budget. You could buy a 2009 Land Rover for that much. For nine grand. How many miles? 157,000 miles. They go for a while, so you can make that work. I feel like one maintenance on that Land Rover is going to cost more than that movie made in the first week. <laughs> like the windows won't roll down. Keep your research ready, James. I got a, I got one good one for you coming up. I'm always ready with the used cars. <laughs> this man's got Auto Trader right next to him, like Joe Dirt in the hole. V for Vendetta. She played Evie. She did the uh, the old cut the hair. A bold one take choice. I love it. I love V for Vendetta. I remember watching it when it first came out, and I loved it. I always like original movies, and I just thought this was really original. I remember the guy had a uh, okay. crazy, <laughs> had a crazy mask with a crazy mustache. Yeah, likes mustaches. I think Anonymous eventually adapted that. No, I don't. I didn't rewatch it, but I remember liking it. I'm strongly in the side of the audience here at ninety percent. I enjoyed it as well. I think what I liked about it was that it felt to me like a weird take on a superhero, even though he's clearly like a terrorist. Yeah. He just seemed unbeatable. You never really get to see, learn about him. And the scenes with her are like incredibly cartoony and on purpose cartoony. I just like that. I like how it all ties together. It might be a little on the nose with some of its political satire, but very much enjoyed it. I haven't watched this movie in a long time. And so I've forgotten kind of most of it. This movie's awesome. I do wonder if it hits different now than it does at the time. Like, I would imagine it would be more subversive and interesting at the time of release than it is now. I love the Natalie Portman of it. I like what she's doing, what she's been asked to do. Kind of has to go through and where she comes out on. I like that this is a movie that clearly has a point of view, but it challenges... V, like it's not just like he's wholly right and everything he's saying is perfect. It kind of challenges him in a way that I found to be compelling. I enjoy the way he just kind of speaks in riddles and is like this like super intellectual like like riddle maker. It's just I think this movie's funny. It's smart. It's subversive. It's it's clever and it's something that I I want to see more versions of this. Mm-hmm. Was this a comic book? Yeah, th- this was a comic book. This comic book came out in 1988, so pretty old. It's like up there with a lot of the inspirations that you'd see, like again from the Watchmen's, like The Dark Knight Returns. I don't know about y'all. Like I watch this movie regularly. Like the remember the remember the fifth of November. Like I, if at least for me, it's like every other year I I catch it, and and I think it's only gotten more relevant. As, as I've watched it over the years. When it came out, originally, I think it seemed more dystopian. And then you started watching it like, you know, mid 2010s. And it was like, oh boy, this is getting, this is starting to really become less dystopian. I think Portman absolutely like just shines in this film, particularly because, like you said, like with V, played by Hugo Weaving, 
like is faceless and you, you don't get to see that. So it's all on her. And I think that she absolutely does that. Good point. So this came out, I think it was a year after Batman Begins. Boy, if we could stay rooted in like the Batman Begins, Christopher Nolan and like this as like comic books, this feels like a really cool, critically acclaimed direction that we could live in. And I don't think we got there, which is fine. I think this movie's amazing. And I think it's it's easily in my top five like comic book movies ever. I think it's very, very well done. Based on your first question to Case, I didn't know if you were going to go in that direction. I thought you were setting him up to fail just so you could tear it down. No, I was just curious. Again, it's like I can talk forever about this movie. I just didn't want to, you know, yeah. dominate the airwaves. You are our comic book expert. So I love hearing your opinion on these things. Do not feel ashamed. I'm sharing it. You should like phone a friend. You can like, let someone has a comic book question. Just send me, I'll send you like a, like a 30 second Snapchat. Yep. It's just like, if people want to know what happens to the dog and the dog movie, we send them to James. It's the same concept. Really? <laughs> he knows. I just send them to does the dog die.com because I'll never watch any dog movie ever again. <laughs> so framing this up, it's 2006, right? She's coming off roles. Like all these star Wars films. Pop culture relevance has never been higher. She gets the Oscar nom and closer. She's in Garden State, of a film that generally is pretty well received. She's in V for Vendetta. So, of course, she gets to host SNL. And she's well known for going to Harvard. She has this, uh, like, larger-than-life persona. And then she steps into something called Natalie's Rap, which is essentially a Lonely Island production that was released on an album three years later. And out of freaking nowhere, just starts rapping about the most vile... TV mature things possible, just turning every bit of persona she had spent her career building upside down and is still one of my favorite things I've seen anybody do on SNL to this day. Absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely incredible. It's one of those things where like it almost feels dumb to call it really smart, mm-hmm. but it, it really is because all of the stuff that you like lay out Yes, all that's accurate. But also the visual of Natalie Portman saying it, there's also a juxtaposition there which makes it funny. Yep. Even if you didn't have all that stuff and it was just Natalie Portman, the visual of Natalie Portman doing it, it would still be funny. But the whole thing makes it so hilarious. She got the short hair because she's regrowing her hair after V for Vendetta. And it's like it dates it immediately to where it's at in the timeline. I will probably rewatch this three or four times at least to prep for this episode. I felt like it was very critical rewatching. I think this was SNL's first viral video because it all the, everything timed up right. Yep. It's great. My only contribution here is I don't watch SNL and I still knew that this came out and watched it and, and thought it was incredible. <laughs> it's important. SNL knows that they made it is when they reach the uninformed like myself. Mm-hmm. Off the screen stuff also as well here, like coming off a lot of that fanfare she launches her own production company in 2008 love seeing that we've seen a bunch of performers do that yeah me too i know case that's big in case's world for for scoring and then 2009 she started dating benjamin millipede millipide i don't know how do you pronounce his last name anybody know nope i don't know but benjamin millipede sounds like a character from fantastic mr fox i don't want to say that but i based on how it's spelled possibly i'm not not great with pronunciations but He's he's French, so it's probably also French. Millipied. Well, they started dating in 09, still together today, had t- two kids together. Very rare to see a relationship last 14 years. 
in that world. Did they get married? No, they did get married, but it was after the kids were born. Yeah. Was it after he signed a prenup? <laughs> <laughs> Sir. <laughs> she was like, you ain't getting this money. Don't think of the money. Fun fact, he choreographed the Sandwalk in Dune, which I feel like is a continued redemption arc for the Sand hate in uh, the Star Wars franchise. Fair point. He's like, don't worry, I'm going to make them love sand for you. (laughs) I think the sand dialogue in Star Wars could have worked if it was written by anyone else other than George Lucas. (laughs) There is a plot point there with Anakin hating sand that could have worked. And instead, he's just like, you know, it's like grainy and shit. We're like, all right, all right, get him off the screen. (laughs) Let this kid drown. That's funny. 2010s. Black Swan, a movie we talked about two episodes ago, plays Nina slash Swan Queen, got her first Oscar win, first and only Oscar win for her role in this film. She fucking bodies that role, man. I've seen this movie three times. Once in theaters where I had the, I think I shared during the Mila Kunis episode, I had the same uh, experience that is experienced on screen when she rolls over and sees her mother sleeping next to her. I actually saw this movie with my mother. So that was a tough, that was a tough watch. (laughs) But in watching this movie three times, I know I'm on the wrong side of history. I just don't like it. It's not for me. I've tried three times and three times over three. So I will let people who do like the movie and I love horror movies and I love psychological thrillers. And it's just not my thing. I'm guessing you just don't like Aronofsky's style here. I've looked into other movies of his and that is absolutely the case. Because he, he did Mother as well, which I know a lot of people hate. That's a movie that I refuse to watch because everyone tells me they hate it. I think his style is perfect for this type of story, especially the anxiety that he's trying to build in the, the viewer. And I think it worked and you just probably didn't like it. There are a lot of creative choices that by a lesser filmmaker would not work in this movie. Agreed. James, I'm fond of this movie. In my research, though, I did find quite a few articles where the ballet community did not love it. So you mm-hmm. are getting to hang out with that ballet crew that you're tight with. And Solidarity. That's where you're living right now, and I love it. I love where you're at. Everyone knows I'm I'm very supportive of the ballet community. <laughs> there was controversy. The doubles said she did 95% of the dances, and then Aronofsky said that Portman did 80%. So who knows? I think I know. Sounds like some real clown math right there. <laughs> I don't like horror movies. But the horror movies that I do love are the ones that make unscary things scary. Mm-hmm. I really love this movie. And I remember like I remember seeing this movie in, in theaters also with my parents. It's an uncomfortable one. <laughs> yeah, just being like blown away and loving it and, and having all these like, you know, images just like burned into my brain. I feel like the hangnail one always just, just every time just like said she was down my spine. And again, I think it's great. And I think she... Kyle, I want to quote you. I think she bodies this. Is that what we said? Is that the hip lingo? Yeah. Cool. We're the same out in California. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of lingo Kyle comes back from San Diego with. Yeah, bruh. I'll say two things because I said a lot of things when we talked about this on the Mia Kunis episode. True. I do think this movie is a masterpiece. The thing that takes it over the edge for me is the way that Aronofsky is able to blend what's happening and the story that he's telling to the story that's being presented with the ballet story. I think that's just next level type of stuff. I also think there's three times in Natalie Portman's career where she kind of goes God mode and she's just, I'm one of the best people to do this thing. This is just one of the best performances I've ever seen a person give. 
when we talk about months and meter and how we do this, that's the thing I'm looking for. I want to, I want to see God mode initiated to be amongst the elites. You got to be able to have something like that. And I think she's done it three times. Two of those times I don't think are controversial for me to say. One of them I think is 2010. I note that she started her partnership with Dior only because 14 years, 13 years later, you still see her doing ads for Dior. So like, yeah, that's, that's, that's an endorsement that continues to just, yeah. I'm, I'm sure line the pocketbook for her. That's a long relationship with the company. Want to hear a funny story? And it's funny because anti-Semite fucking eat shit because of it. Uh, Dior hires her and the week before they're about to announce her and like their um, contract, uh, she's going to be a spokeswoman. Like their head designer is filmed giving like an anti-Semitic rant. Mm. And then she immediately was like, all right, cool. Then I'm canceling my contract. Fuck that guy. And Dior immediately fires that dude and was like, nope, he's gone. Fuck that guy. Yeah, we agree. You're cool. Oh, shit. 15 years later, she's still there. What was Mel Gibson doing making uh, dresses? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, similar rant. Uh, Maybe not as extreme as Mel's, but watching bad things happen to bad people. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things. That's good. 2011, No Strings Attached, goes to the rom-com side. She produced this film as long, along with starring alongside Ashton Kutcher. She said she would like to do more rom-coms. She just wants to get offered rom-coms where the character doesn't die in it. Apparently, those are the types of roles she gets offered, but she enjoys these types of films and would like to do more of them. Really made a lot of money. I found this movie to be quite bad. <laughs> Very unenjoyable. It may have been the Ashton Kutcher of it all. He's not for me. Yes. You know, it could be that because I think that she's plenty charming. I would, it was different seeing her in a rom com. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see more of that, but you know, she did a good job. It's she's always enjoyable to watch. So to me, it's the Ashton Kutcher of it all. It just didn't work. I concur. I don't think I'll ever watch this again. You have no strings attached to this movie. I think that's good. <laughs> Very important. 2011, Your Highness plays Isabel alongside Zoe De Chanel. A very different type of role for her. Kind of like a hero type. I'd like a stoner comedy that did not go well in the box office. I like that she did something completely different than anything she had done before, even if it didn't go well. That's a Danny McBride, right? Yeah, Danny McBride. I remember enjoying watching this movie and kind of appreciating the surprise seeing Natalie Portman in, in this type of a movie. That's fun. I rewatched it. Where the heart is is way worse. Yeah, I would hope so. It's it's fine. Like it's a dumb, stupid stoner comedy with James Franco and Danny McBride. You get what exactly what you expect out of it. it. Didn't pretend to be highbrow. It's toilet humor in the medieval context. Or project choice. You might want to knock her. I don't know. I think she's got great range. I agree. It's effortless for her to do Black Swan and then come around and do something like this. It's effortless for her. It's it's really incredible. Rap on SNL. Do Black Swan. Do Star Wars. Do Your Highness. Do No Strings Attached is a very all very different film and like performance experiences. She enters the Marvel Universe in 2011's Thor, plays Jane, alongside Chris Hemsworth and Rene Russo. Four times, technically, if you count them subbing her into one of the Avengers films. So was she not received well as Thor's significant other? Yeah. The movie itself wasn't received well, but people forget that because of how well Chris Hemsworth's character kind of changes in other movies. Yeah. And he becomes kind of likable and funny, and they give him like a deadpan sense of humor. The character was incredibly serious when it first came on there, and 
Yeah. It's just easier to blame the person who's not in all the movies you like that it's like their fault that the movie is not as good as you want it to be. Oh, okay. This movie was so serious. Like they made Chris Hemsworth dye his eyebrows blonde. Mm-hmm. Like that they were like, <laughs> if we don't do this, like you've seen the Star Wars like goblins. <laughs> like if we don't if Thor doesn't have golden eyebrows, like my God. Yeah, I, I didn't love this movie when it came out, like as a comic book nerd, and I'm not a huge fan of most of the Marvel Phase One stuff. I think that though that like this movie did show audiences like what people wanted from thor which i think the coffee scene do you remember like when he's like mm-hmm. i think that and then like the coat hanger scene which is like thor interacting with the world is the funniest shit yeah it's like the, the best parts of this movie and i think she's fine i just think the writing's whatever but i do think that those little nuggets that were gleamed from this movie actually did a good job of showing like what thor could be agree i always struggled with their chemistry together they didn't work for me I don't really need anything really dynamic, but this movie kind of leaned into that Mm -hmm. and it just never really worked for me. Also, I, it just, this is one of those things where I feel like the movie that would make Thor successful is not a movie that you cast Natalie Portman to be in. The Jane character could be really good in the way it's presented in this, just not in this movie. I think all the things that like Skarsgård's character was like doing is actually like you should have just gotten rid of him and just had her be the the central science person behind everything else. And there were just you know, too many science people. <laughs> too many scientists. Do you guys think they already had her arc planned? So knowing that they needed like a powerful actor for the last no, one. I think they were like, we got Thor's arc and then we got one science person. And then people are like, no, you need 12 science people. Let's fucking <laughs> make the science people Avengers and throw them alongside Thor. This is phase one Marvel. They've had success, but they're still trying to make this work. And they're like, we have a movie, Chris Hemsworth, not a huge star yet. We need somebody that's a big deal. Natalie Portman. How about the woman that went to Harvard too, right? If you want to, sell the fact this person's very smart scientist maybe again iron man is was not like the character in the like marvel comics and so the fact that that movie was so good and that robert downey jr became the center of all this that is like revisionist history right Ooh, interesting best thor runs in my mind were like these cool fantastical ones by by an author named walter simonson again they're like the originators of like Thor, but he's a frog and he's fighting like a, like a kingdom of rat people. That's where Thor was. The fact that they got Natalie Portman was probably amazing on their part. And that ultimately they just didn't know how to write the character. And they didn't know what audiences were looking for That's true. in a hero who was still pretty B tier compared to, again, like the Batmans, the Supermans, the Spidermans, the folks that we had really seen be box office successes. That's a wonderful explanation. I love that. Around this time with like the whole family thing, she's not working a ton, but so she does the two Thor movies back to back. And then she does her first of two Terrence Malick films in Night of Cups. She played Elizabeth alongside Christian Bale. We've talked about Terrence Malick in the past. If you want to go listen to our Jessica Chastain episode to hear us talk about Tree of Life and how much we are the antithesis of people who love. Terrence Malick is not for me. It's not a, t- a style of filmmaking that I enjoy. I don't like the shot where they're following her head hanging off the ground, like upside down. Like I'm like, I'm, this is just a, a practice and self-indulgence for Terrence Malick and his cinematography. It's just not my thing. 
So I'm going to be honest, I'm going to take off some points for her because she was, I could forgive one Malik film, but you went back to the well and probably Malik's two worst rated films. That's poor project choice. Did anybody watch either of the Terrence Malik films to prep for this song to song or night of cups? No, I was too busy watching dark world. I tried to watch song to song about musicians around the, like an Austin music festival. It's just so self indulgent. I just like, nah, I'm good. I don't need to partake in this guy's vanity. I'm good. It just hurts. The greatest gift Warren ever gave me was completely ruining any Terrence Malick movie for the rest of my life. So I will never watch <laughs> a Terrence Malick movie only because Warren has convinced me. Episode five, Tree of Life. Uh, we cut that tree down. It's no longer producing life. 90 episodes ago, he's convinced me to never watch another Terrence Malick movie. Thank you, Warren. I like what I've seen from Terrence Malick, but I haven't seen a ton. There you go. Including Tree of Life. So one day it'll all happen on this podcast. Do you like dinosaurs? And you'll fucking love it. It's a goddamn journey in <laughs> cinema enjoyment. Do not spoil true life for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to spoil uh, flashbacks to dinosaurs. Anyways, she goes to the director's seat in 2015's A Tale of Love and Darkness. She directed, wrote it, and played a character in that film. I'm told, based on reviews, it did not go over very well. And I can't imagine it made a lot of money either. No, it lost money, but critics liked it. 72% on the critic side. Do you think they loved it because it's Natalie Portman who directed it? Well, I think sometimes they tee off on actors mm-hmm. when they try to direct if it's not really good. So I would imagine it was probably pretty good. It's tied to 1940s Jerusalem. So again, passion project tied to her heritage, her cultural identity. So that, that part is interesting to see her put her money and her directing skills to work on a project that's important to her. Yeah. We've here uh, in 2016 for Largest Critic Gap, which I promise this was not manufactured in any way possible. We've been talking a bit about how Aubrey tried to show his students this movie, and it did not go over well, but it just happened with the rotation that her Oscar-nominated role in as Jackie, Kennedy and Jackie, fell for Aubrey. I feel like I need to explain. As a film studies teacher, I was teaching them about how we watch and look for things critically. And we were talking about acting. And we were talking about subtle acting. And I thought, this is one of the movies that I think about when it comes to that. This was the least favorite movie that I showed them. <laughs> and now bear in mind, I showed this to them pretty early in the year. I asked them what their favorite movies were and their least favorite movies for their midterm. This got name checked so many times. Is this like a write in fill in the blank or was it was this like a drop down where there's options? It was face to face. I said, what's your least favorite movie? Oh. And they were like, Jackie, they remembered the name. Oh, man, this is just off the cuff. One kid said, why did you show us that? <laughs> I still don't get it. That's a fair question. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie that I deeply love. Look, don't ask any questions you don't want the answer to. Fair point. And I would argue it's got some historical significance. So there, there's a lot of reasons, but that's a hilarious response, Aubrey. <laughs> this is the 2016 Pablo Lorraine film written by Noah Oppenheim about Jackie Kennedy and what happened after the assassination of JFK. Now, going into this movie, didn't know anything about Pablo Lorraine. Didn't know much about Jackie Kennedy. I knew I had like a passable knowledge of Jackie Kennedy and what was going on. I knew that she was a big deal. I knew that she was an icon. I knew kind of why she was in those places, but I didn't know a ton about her. Saw this movie in theaters, blew me away. 
from a cinematics perspective, I think this movie is beautiful and so many subtle choices. This movie's beautiful. The cinematography is outstanding. The main takeaway is Natalie Portman, though. I think this is one of the best movies in talking about her ability that we can talk about in all of her filmography because this is the second of the three movies I say that she goes God mode in because it's uncanny what she does in terms of capturing Jackie Kennedy from physical standpoint to her voice to even the emotions that would possibly be running through a person during this time. It is uncanny. There's side-by-side stuff that you can look at if you really want to admire that. I know it's popular now to kind of rail against actors who play a person and they become the person that it's not, you know, something that should be lauded. But this is tremendous from that standpoint. I also think that this movie is incredible outside of her from what it talks about dealing with grief, watching a person manage grief at the highest possible scale is really compelling because I think it brings out a lot of other themes that run along that because of what is attached to her. I will admit this movie is a bit of a chore. (laughs) It's very slow paced, which I felt this way about Spencer. So maybe it's just the style of Pablo Lorraine filmmaking. If this is not something you just decide, I guess we'll just watch Jackie. We've got nothing else to do. Like you got to want to go into this knowing what you're getting. I think this movie is wonderful in every possible way. And I think she should have won the Oscar in 2016 for this movie. I think this is the best performance that she's ever given. I don't think it's a terribly hot take. I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. I think in defense of your students, it is a very heavy movie. And as it should be, but even someone like myself watching it for the first time, knowing Jackie Kennedy's story loosely, this movie very much focuses on like dealing with grief grief and shock and anger of a death that no one seems to care about besides you. And like watching, I was like, Oh fuck, I'm 20 minutes in and this is like dark, dark. And then there's another hour and 40 minutes. And so I can understand why a high school student who doesn't know what they're walking into is like, what the fuck? Oh my God. Now I'm dealing with, I have to process death right now. Like what is happening? (laughs) Funny James. (laughs) I agree. Stuff. What I was asking them to watch is all very present. She has to do a lot. She communicates a lot very subtly. I think what makes the performance in particular just so mind-blowing to me is that there's so many different things you're pulling away from what she's going through in each moment, and you're just watching her process it. It's never over the top. And so you're watching a person become another person and manage very complex emotions. I just am very impressed by it. And, you know, I will never show it in a class like that again. <laughs> I think you got to double down, man. You got to just be like, <laughs> scene by scene, look, we got to spend more time on this film. We got to, we got to, scene gotta, gotta by think, scene. Yes. <laughs> look, you got to think two steps ahead of these little whippersnappers. Yeah. Well, it hurt me that they also didn't know who Jackie Kennedy was. Huh, well, it was one kid in a class of 25 that knew who she was. Yeah. And then you realize like history lessons that need to be taught. And you're like, all right, well, let's go. But we had a president who got assassinated. You guys are aware of this, correct? Yes. Everyone, not along. <laughs> yes. 
Look, you're already building out the curriculum. You're doing a great job. <laughs> she brings that up in the movie and like you can feel the fucking anger within her when she's like asking people like, do you know who William McKinley is? And the guy's like, no. And she just starts listing off the presidents that's been assassinated until she gets to Lincoln. And the guy's like, oh yeah, of course. Who doesn't know Abraham Lincoln? Free the slaves. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And like, she was like trying to prove a point to everyone around her that like, no one here seems to give a shit besides me and his brother that this happened. Everyone else is doing like procedural stuff. Mm-hmm. She's spending this time fighting to maintain his legacy, which I think is also in and of itself really compelling. And so it's just one of those things where it's like a really famous person for a really, for a really kind of obvious reason for Americans told from a standpoint of someone who's not an American. And I think when you get that with a filmmaker, you get a movie that is able to touch different places than if an American would have made it. Film studies class aside, I vouch for how great this movie really is. The biggest argument is I, I remember the 2016 Oscars. I was very much like, there's no way you're going to give this to any other person. This is by far and away the best performance. And I just was floored. Who won over her? Emma Stone for La La Land, which is a great performance. I have to say this because my wife is listening and we've had this argument. It is a great performance. Emma Stone is great. It's not what Natalie Portman is doing in this movie. It's two different things. If you think you're going to win an Oscar against a role that talks about the glory years of Hollywood, you got another thing coming. They fucking love roles that talk about the positives of Hollywood. I feel like your best shot is to play Jackie Kennedy. True, fair, but <laughs> you're not tap dancing and singing about love in, in L.A., are you? In the game Paper, Rock, Scissors, movies that talk about L.A. is dynamite. Agreed. All right, so we're going to flip it to lowest critic score. So we went from a film that people were generally pretty high about to cases already shaking his head. So let's see if he's a fan of her role as Laura in Planetarium. Was this the lowest critic or lowest audience? Oh, wait, it's both. Consistency. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to set the table. During my box office research, I found an article on Looper titled, The Most Pathetic Box Office Openings of All Time. Yeah, Planetarium landed in this. I'm just going to read this quote real quick, where Looper says, Portman made a mistake signing up for this French period piece, a movie that critics described as a liquefied Chanel ad. Visually sumptuous but deadly bore, and a film that looks promising on paper but has no idea how to put its ingredients together. After premiering at the Toronto Film Festival, James, get your calculator ready, the movie was silently dropped into one lonely theater where it earned a shabby $625 on its opening weekend. You know how, how hard it's going to be for me to find a $625 car? I think you get like 300 for junking it. As you're looking that up, I did a little math on my own. Get a used go-kart. In 2016, the average cost of a movie ticket was $8.65. And if you divide that, you end up with 72 people. We'll round up. 73 people watch this movie. Most movie theaters on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are going to have four showings per day. So that means that this movie averaged six people per per showing on its opening weekend. That's seven hundred and ninety six dollars in twenty twenty three. Inflation, baby. It doesn't make me feel any better. Nor did the producer. Here's what I'll say about this movie. I agree a hundred percent with what they talked about in that article. When I read the synopsis of this, Kyle, I was actually excited to watch it. Two American sisters who are known to be mediums and can 
contact Ghost, and while touring Europe, they get connected with a filmmaker who wants to film their seances and make them famous. Spoiler alert, I'll give you a second. It doesn't work out for anybody the way they wanted it to, except Natalie Portman's character, who ends up becoming a famous European actress by the end of the movie. Boy, do I got a tough one here. Am I critics at 15 or audience at 22? Hmm. I'm going to land in the 10% range, so I would have been lower than critics. I feel like you subtract from one to the other to get to 7%, and that's really where you need to live. <laughs> Do you think I kind of knew I was in trouble, though, and I was hoping for the best, because this is one of those movies that has two names. It seemed like a really cool idea on paper. It didn't translate, and it has nothing to do with Natalie Portman. I blame her French husband. Maybe. That's what I blame. I legitimately couldn't find a car for 600 bucks. I've been looking the whole time. <laughs> you get a go-kart. You get your carburetor. What about 796, man? It's 2023. You got to expand your mind. Get a go-kart. This was the second movie I watched that I didn't finish. Boom. It's also significantly weirder than Case made it sound. The seances with one of the dudes seems like oddly sexual, but with ghosts. Oh, 100%. Ooh, sounds sexy. Not even. Nope, it's not. No, not sexy. Okay, never mind. And that's not scary either. Lowest critic score for you. And audience score. Let's not forget <laughs> that. And a lowest opening box office weekend, I bet you. Just spicy across the board. Yeah. All right, so 2017, Holly Hunter, Terrence Malick, Song to Song, as we talked about before. And then somebody added Eating Animals from 2017 to the show notes. This is a sequential high-profile documentary. Last episode, we talked about Kristen Bell. This episode, we're talking about Natalie Portman, and it's got a 91 from critics. She was the narrator. But what made this oh, yeah. this particular documentary interesting is she would subsequently go on to Hot Ones to promote it. And it, the movie is very much anti-animal farming. And so she goes on to a, a show that focuses on eating hot wings. She does the vegan version. Even Sean in there is like, you know, like I, I have like this this debate in my head whether I should keep doing this show after watching your documentary. It was so good. So I, I put that in there just to kind of bring those two things up because I think that's two really cool tied together experiences. Literally a perfect transition case. And I appreciate you for it. It's a great connection. The second SNL, Natalie's Raps of 12 years after the original one, I guess 11 years after, everyone's like, holy shit, Natalie's on SNL and she now is a family and it's framed in a way to be like, well, I have a family and now I'm, I'm more centered. I'm not as crazy. And of course, they flip it on you. It seems like you're the exact same person, just with new references. <laughs> is it mom moves? Is that the second one? I don't dance now. I make mommy moves. Yeah. Yes. She talks about how when she had birth, she didn't even push. Just slip right out. That's that's pretty funny. <laughs> Tell me why. It's a different vibe, but it's still pretty good. And the whole premise is Andy Sandberg's character had a child with her. He just wants her to like reconnect. And she's like, that's not my kid. You're a mess, Carl. And that's the gist of it. So please go watch it. It's very, very funny on SNL on YouTube. I have a feeling this is Aubrey's like third godlike performance, potentially in Vox Lux. She played Celeste from 2018. Yeah, she goes God mode in this movie, which I think is, this is not a movie I would recommend to everybody. So I will start for this. Mm -mm. This is the type of movie that shows you the entire credit sequence in the first like five seconds of the movie. So if you don't like the idea of that alone, don't watch it. Yeah. I think this movie is very interesting. I think it takes a really compelling look at like tragedy, trauma, 
and celebrity. And then it features a legit 10 to 15 minute sequence of Natalie Portman just being a pop star. Yeah. Which I find outrageous uh, in the best possible ways. It tells you that she's a pop star over and over again. She acts like a pop star. She is believable as a pop star, like almost every single movie is. And then she performs a concert as a pop star. And every time I see that sequence, I just am like, this is this is different. There's a lot of great work in this movie. So if you are interested in something that is, it's a little offbeat. It's not typical in any way. It's very unique in and in of its own style. And I'd say point of view, but it's really interesting. And I think it's one of the best performances that she gives. The least surprising thing I read about is that Neon distributed this because this feels like very much a Neon type of movie. Yep. Aubrey, I agree with you on every point, And I was surprised that it was only a 6237 critic fan. James, did you watch this movie? No, I did not. Dang it. She's got a very pronounced, uh, what I'm guessing is a Long Island accent. And I wanted to get your take on how strong her accent was. I would imagine it's good, right? She's from the motherland. She probably just turned off her fake <laughs> I speak like a normal person accent and just went back to her actual voice. <laughs> no more code switching needed there, baby. It's not even code switching. What it is, is it's beaten out of you by being mocked by strangers once you leave the <laughs> New York area. And then all of a sudden you're like, I'm just going to stop speaking like this. I mean, there was actually two tragedies that I, th- I thought they handled well within the story. At times, I couldn't tell if she was paying homage or satire towards different things in society. Is she taking shots at Madonna or is she like paying respects to Madonna? When I read the text, I thought you guys were going to shit all over this movie. And so I watched it. I'm like, I I think I might have a debate with these guys tonight, but I'm glad to hear somebody else enjoyed this movie. I love this movie. It was like my second favorite movie of that year. I think it's both case in terms of paying homage to Madonna, but also satirizing the way we manage that level of celebrity. Yeah. I think it's more of a commentary on celebrity than it is any individual person while also being like, these people are also incredible. Yeah. Because I think that is also on display. Like this, she is legitimately super talented and is really like good at being the, the massive pop star that she is. So I think it's doing, I think it's kind of, there's a lot of plates spinning at one time. And it's got a brilliant narration by our boy Willem Dafoe. Also, very true. Willie Dafoe, baby. Very good. All right, let's get to our final review of the night. We are at highest critic score, so we saved the best for last in, in score and in possible reviewer as well. And that's Annihilation 2018, and Yerky's going to talk through it. I've never had a review this late in the game with the podcast, so excited to step into this territory and also vibing on some very crushable pilsners that I've also been enjoying all review. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking loved this movie when it came out. It's directed by Alex Garland. I believe it's his second film after Ex Machina. Had a budget of about 40 to 55 mil. Box office was only 43 million, but it has had a strong like at home purchase and kind of cult classic it's sitting at an 88% on rotten tomatoes. I'm honestly surprised that it's that this, I was surprised that this was the top critic score. I would have expected it to be black Swan, honestly, but this movie is like absolutely my jam. Again, it's like that type of horror movie that kind of forgets that it's a horror movie and steps into the space of, I think, being more off like off-putting and unsettling. For me, this was like, what if John Carpenter's The Thing 
but you added in like really, really deep character exposition on grief and sadness and loneliness. So Natalie Portman plays Lena. It's quickly shown that like Lena's husband, Kane, played by Oscar Isaac, um, has disappeared after some kind of special ops mission. Months after that, uh, he just returns to her home and then promptly begins to die. Things are kind of shown to you that he he had gone to this mission that went into what is being called the Shimmer, which is a slowly expanding aura or bubble of sorts where whoever they send into never returns, never comes back. And at this point that Natalie Portman is thrown alongside a bunch of other female protagonists who have reasons to, to go into this space more from a scientific perspective than like a militaristic one. That's a really cool angle and just a different, it kind of brings this like almost a ghostbuster vibe to the space. Mm-hmm. The whole movie is just, it's always this constant sense of dread and I, I love it. I'm absolutely obsessed with the effects decisions that were made in this movie. I started to pay attention almost almost if not every scene outside of the nighttime ones every scene in the shimmer has that like rainbow aura lighting lens flare kind of effect that goes on and as much as this film jumps back and forth between when it's taking place i think that one that was just visually a really incredible way to ground the the viewer in where they were at what point the second piece I really love just from a decision that was made is that I think all the flashbacks can be interpreted as Natalie Portman's character, Lena, whether it's a dream or a memory. I think that it all can be viewed as the main protagonist having that memory in that same moment. And I thought that that was really, really cool and interesting to to kind of think about. Ex Machina is one of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time. I was really excited for this. Alex Garland has done a bunch of movies I've really enjoyed. I think this movie is very good. I enjoy a lot of it. I do appreciate how it makes you kind of squirm as the viewer because it won't let you get fully scared of the situation. So you do have to deal with the character development and their stories and the drama and the intricacies of that story. And when it gets to the end and it's like full-blown sci-fi banana land, I thought they killed it with the graphics. The fact that it is like fully CGI, but like you can tell that it is clearly her running around in there. Very cool. I think it held up really well. I thought the music was awesome. I was a very big fan of this movie. I agree. Like, I just think the CGI by and large could be much better. I appreciate that they picked her to be the lead of a female driven sci-fi story. And I think it goes to show like what people think of Natalie Portman as a performer underlying misogyny is probably part of the reason why some people the audience score isn't as high as the critic score here would be my guess i just like at this point she's she is a star and people are going to come to their the sci-fi movie the rom-com they're going to go to whatever to see natalie portman i like this movie there was a time in school late middle school early high school when you're reading like poems it's poetry time in english class or shakespeare And every once in a while, I got a poem and I was like, I can't wait to get called on because I know exactly what this is about. I got a great answer. (laughs) And then there was other times where I'm like, I have an answer ready if you call on me, but don't call on me because I don't believe in this answer. And that's kind of how I feel about this movie. I think I get it, but I don't know if I get it. 
And that's always kind of kept me at arm's length with it. And now part of that is if I'm being really transparent, could be my own insecurities and that level where I just like, if I don't get a movie, it frustrates me. And then I just like, I have issues with it. I, the, if I were to give an answer, it would have been about grief. So I feel a lot more comfortable now. Having said that, when it gets to the end and it just goes fully, as James said, banana land, I, I love it looking at it. And I'm also just like, what is going on? But I like this movie a lot. And one of the things that I like about Alex Garland is as crazy as it is, as open to interpretation as it might be, it's inviting to watch it again and again. Mm-hmm. So this being my second time watching it, I will watch it for a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time because it is a, it's a good movie to watch. And Natalie kills. Yeah. I loved your example there, Aubrey. I followed you immediately when you said that. I was like, oh yeah, that happens all the time to me when it comes to interpreting any form of art. It's like, I think I get what they're going for here, uh, but I would feel bad trying to convince other people that that's what the point is. Totally understood that. And again, give the character ex- exposition. I, I also interpreted it as mostly around gr- grief and loneliness. Um, I loved the concept of this idea of like humans you know, we self-destruct more than we actually destroy. Like I thought that was a really, really profound take. And then to, to Kyle's point, the way that I uh, bamboozled him into letting me uh, do this review, I, I read the short story. Um, they're very not similar. So like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> the book fixates like, but it gives you a lot more information about like the, the, the shimmer. Um, and it's actually called area X as like a concept and it's kind of more about the like oh hey global warming is happening and we there's this like flow impending doom compared to this movie which is full like again full horror and just weird weird sci-fi vibes the whole way down so anyway thanks again kyle oh you're welcome man well the score at the end is awesome they like they nailed the creepy sci-fi ominous tones that's what sticks with me after watching it a second time is is how well that matches the oddness of what you're watching at the end of that movie. It makes me want to go back for a third time and see see more things like that that I can fixate on and linger on, which I think these are some of the best versions of movies. These are great filmmakers where you can create something that like is a world is so compelling or an idea is so interesting that there's so many different offshoots and layers that you that you get to do the work on. And I find that to be uniquely really satisfying. The last thing I'll note here before we move on, she was lightly pregnant and she talked about how she enjoyed like shooting machine guns with, while knowing she was like two months pregnant with her child, two or three months pregnant. So getting after it with a little bit of an action role while, you know, being with child. For folks still listening, if you haven't had a chance to check out Lucy in the Sky, do we recommend people see this? What really happened was far more interesting than movie. Thor Love and Thunder, if you want to see Jane return and take a much bigger role in the superhero space, not my favorite Marvel movie, but if you want to see that character get a little bit of a different arc, I guess worth checking out if that's your jam. The movie's terrible. It's awful. What's fucking really frustrating, like that whole Jane Foster, she's, she's referred to as the Mighty Thor and in the comic world what sucks is that thor actually became unworthy to wield mjolnir and so in the comic books thor does something that makes him unworthy of wielding mjolnir and it goes out and finds someone who is worthy jane foster and then she is the mighty thor for for years and i hated i hated how this movie one 
just got rid of that, right? And and made the actual reason was that Thor gave the hammer permission to go and do a thing. It was like simultaneously, like, how do you disempower this this otherwise really cool female-led comic arc in a way that made it just stupid? So anyway, movie sucks. <laughs> Hate it. It literally like undoes all the cool things that the comic did. Yeah, nah, it, I'm not, whatever. not a fan of the movie. I'm going to make an executive decision on May, December. I will say if you haven't seen this yet, technically it is highest critic score. It just hasn't been in existence long enough, I think, for it to let it percolate. It is a fucking bonanza story. The OG story is bonanza. There are points where you're like, what the fuck just happened? But again, it's about a, a much older woman start basically assaulting a young boy and then following their story many years later. You could say Natalie Portman goes God mode here, but I'm just going to keep us moving and say, if you haven't seen it yet, go watch it on Netflix. Come up with your own answer on whether you like it or whether or not you like the story. There's a lot of ethical ramifications for even telling the story in the first place, which I know Natalie has commented on. Top performances, case, what do we got? All right. Well, I'm returning to an old and reliable source for us, goldderby.com, the title of this particular list. Natalie Portman Movies, 16 Greatest Films Ranked Worst to Best. So let's go ahead and do her top 10. We have talked about every movie. The Planetarium. Planetarium is not on the list. Shocker. Jackie. Jackie is number two. Black Swan. Black Swan is number one. Annihilation. Annihilation is number nine. Leon the Professional. Leon Professional is number eight. These are best movies, not best performances, right? These are greatest films, yes. Vox Lux. Vox Lux is on the list, number four. What? Number four, Gold Derby. Also, sorry, this doesn't mean anything to you guys. Take that, Emily. Heat. If it's best movies. Heat is number seven baby i feel like cold mountain cold mountain is not in the top 10 came in at number 15 v for vendetta v for vendetta is number 10 i'm glad it's on the list over cold mountain i'm surprised but (laughs) that's great we are missing number three number five and number six in the top 10 beautiful girls beautiful girls is not in the top 10 came in at number 12 garden state garden state is Number five. No strings attached. Please don't. No strings attached is the first one not on any of the list. Bunch of haters. <laughs> Vindicated. Closer. Closer is number three. Anywhere but here. We are missing one, and it is not anywhere but here. Everyone says I love you. Everyone says I love you is number 13, not in the top 10. A tale of love and darkness? That is definitely not on here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Think use recency bias here, Kyle. Is it May-December? May-December is number six. Wow, it's a very recent article then. Holy shit. Oh, I'm sorry. Anywhere But Here is number 16, so it did make the list. All right, let's get into the Munson meter, y'all. What we do, we rate every actor on a scale of 0 to 100 based on a variety of factors that could include anything from longevity, pop culture, project choice, their acting range, awards footprint, any other talents they might have, their personal life, comedic chops box office success or anything else that matters to us as Munson's. So we will start this time with Case, lucky number one. As you guys know, I don't put a whole lot of thought or merit into my scores. They're very random, very arbitrary. A couple things stand out with Natalie Portman for me. Number one, I've never watched a movie 
that was bad that Natalie Portman was in where I didn't go, Portman was pretty good. And I've never watched a really good movie and been like, man, Portman killed that movie. So I'm just, every time I've watched a movie with her, she's been good. Her box office is impressive. I think her range, both as a performer and just as an artist, are are really good. You guys know that I, I tend to yield to the professionals and the experts. Since James is the only person that has ever seen a performer that we've covered in person, I'm going to yield my score, and I'm going to give the same score James does. That's incredible. It's a lot <laughs> so, of pressure. So we'll find it. Well, all right, I'll be ready to punch in two at the same time. <laughs> so for my review, I'm going to just defer to James, uh, and then we'll just keep moving on. Um, <laughs> so I'll say this. There are a lot, a lot of things to really like about Natalie. I think first and foremost, the Natalie's rap, 1 and 2.0, that type of like how meta that is, how provocative it was and how different it was in her own sense of humor about herself is worth a lot in my book. To quote Yerky earlier, she's been bodying roles since she was in Leon the Professional from the start. <laughs> yeah, there's some duds in there, just like most actors we cover. Not every movie's going to be great, but I mean, she's, she's a star f- for rightful reasons. Um, she's done big budget blockbusters, stoner comedies, indie drama, sci-fi pictures, n- done narrated documentaries she's done everything so the range is incredible the the project choice is really good she has the award she's won the oscar she's won the golden globe she's got the theater background she's got the off the screen talent she's directed pictures that weren't terrible she's done everything and i love that she again does the roles tie into her jewish heritage her activism we barely even talked about and i'm sure james researched she's done so much philanthropic stuff activism work like she puts her money where her mouth is. She puts her time where her mouth is. Um, and I got to give credit to that. My only knock, again, negative points for being in more than one Terrence Malick film. And that's just a me thing. But you make the mistake once, shame on you. You make it twice, shame on shame on me for not recognizing and, and doing that. So I, I guess I have the first score. I'm going to get her a very high score. I'm going to give her an 88. feel pretty good about that number. We'll go to Yerky, our guest Munson. Kyle, you hit on so much of what I was going to touch on, too. Honest to God, I was thinking 88, but I want to give what I'm going to call the fuck the incel bonus. And I'm going to just add to onto that. You can't cut this. Good luck. Um, and uh, so I'm going to give it a straight up 90. Solid 90, baby. Aubrey. Uh, so at this point, we all kind of know what I'm doing here. And with that, this score is going to be high because I think she's one of the best living actors. I think that's proven all throughout her career. Even now, going back to Leon the Professional, you can see the natural talent and ability just there. She is, at her best, one of the best people doing this thing. We can get to nitpicking if we wanted to, but there's no real need. I think she's great. I love pretty much all the choices that she makes because they're really interesting. Even when they don't work, I think the choices are interesting. And, you know, she's a God-tier actor, so she gets a 95 from me. Baby, let's go. I'm not mad about that at all. All right, James, uh, I would say you're going to round us out, but you're going to round out with two sc- two double scores. So what do you got? Bring it home, James. Obviously, uh, she's a Long Island girl. Got to represent there. I completely support her blindly, like all the other celebrities that are famously from Long Island. Like, <laughs> respect. You got to respect her. Yeah, Becky from Full House went to my high school. She's in jail. We got a lot of winners. Lindsay Lohan went to Comac. She's in jail. But sometimes we get a good one. I also got to see her in person one time. And uh, I've told the story many times. It was 
2012, she was super pregnant. Uh, I was walking down the streets in Manhattan. She was walking out of American Apparel. And immediately, like, I walked right past her, like, that's Natalie Portman. Like, right in my head, I knew immediately who she was. I'm like, whoa, so cool. And I'm like, sitting there, I'm like, wow, she's like shorter than I thought she'd be. Oh my God, she's so pretty. And that baby's like going to come any day. And like, I'm just sitting there having these thoughts to myself. And I realized I walked right past where I was going. And my brain like turned off. And it was so weird to just like, stare at a celebrity like a moth to the flame i'm assuming their life is incredibly difficult because i'm someone who's a fan i imagine someone who's like actually like deranged is probably way scarier but i scared myself i was like i just followed her for like half a city block and this isn't where i'm going i should just go do other things like she's got a life to live but to have that profound effect on me to a core level obviously i have to give you a high score and so i'm glad that case is letting me do the double score here all that being said, I'm going to give her an 83. Oh, oh, that's a good score. That's a good score. With that, that gives Natalie Portman a solid 87.8, which puts her in eighth place between Maggie Smith and Emma Thompson. Ooh, top 10. Uh, losing to Emma Thompson again. <laughs> <laughs> the double 83. She was in second place before the double 83. I just want you guys to be aware of that. 83 is about right for me, too. That's what I like to hear, Chase. Hey, she spent too much time in the dark web of <laughs> Natalie Portman subreddits. <laughs> All right, Aubrey, what has she got coming? I see at least three projects. She's got a handful of things coming, but there's not a ton of information on what she's got coming. So there's three in development. One doesn't even have a name. Another is called Bronco Bell, uh, where there's nothing attached to it. And then we're all completely beside ourselves, which is a title that I'm very interested in. A college student laments the loss of a chimpanzee she claims is her twin sister. Or it's in development, so let's see what happens there. Foxy Trotter is an animated film that's in pre-production. She's the only person attached to it in terms of like voice cast. She's never done an animated picture before, has she? I don't think so. Uh, she was in What Ifs, I believe, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, she was in that. She she was in that. I think she did like a Simpsons episode because everybody does that. She did Simpsons. She did two episodes of the Simpsons. So, I mean, that'll be interesting to see what comes out. Probably the thing I'm the most interested in is the one that has the most information, which is a miniseries, Lady in the Lake, which is based off of a novel and is directed by Alma Harrell from Honey Boy. Mm-hmm. That I'm sure is going to be really interesting. But that's pretty much it. But I'm sure, like, because of the way that she works and what she kind of picks her projects on, there'll be something small that pops up out of nowhere in a film festival, too. Make a cool 600 bucks on opening weekend. <laughs> she's still a cool, what, she's born 81, so she's, what, 42 years old? Like, she's in her prime, man. <laughs> like, she, there's a lot of years ahead with her to do incredible work, so. Oh, yeah. Especially as her kids get a little bit older, like she'll have more flexibility with her schedule. So shit, we might see her on a recurring television show at some point. You just never know. So we'll see. Appreciate you, Aubrey. Our first episode of 2024 is going to drop on January 18th. We've got Sam Phillips coming back. Had him on a few times for Dakota Fanning and Zoe Deschanel. He's picking from one of these five. Or, well, the, the wheel selected one of these five, and he decided to join us for one of those. Mm-hmm. We've got Steve Buscemi, Frankie Faison, Keenan Ivory Wayans, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Michael Kenneth Williams. There's some, some solid options there. He's going to do the public service angle 
Because wasn't he law enforcement at some point? He is a cop. Yeah, and so he's going to take Steve Buscemi, who used to be a firefighter. He's also the best choice. I want the switch up, and I want it to be Michael Kenneth Williams. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because he can dive into the wire, right? Like, ooh, that feels good. Homer's the shit. Mm. We haven't talked about the wire in 94 episodes. That would force me to watch it. Same. It needs to be Michael K. Williams. Agreed. I like Keenan Ivory Wayne's, but can we change it to Marlon so we can talk about his Marlon Wayne's latest comedy special, which was my favorite comedy special of 2023. And one of the best parody films of all time. Don't be a menace to South Central with drinking your juice in the hood. <laughs> Lok dong. That's a fact. No, you'll get Keenan Ivory Wayne's and you'll fucking like it. All right. So deal with it. Message. We still talk about it. <laughs> I think the most interesting one would be Michael Kenneth Williams. I agree. I think he's an actor that's grossly underrated and just not enough people talk about him. You know, the unfortunately, the time people pay the most attention to him is after he passed. And it would be fun to do a real, real good dive in his career, which would be merit. There's a lot of merit to that. It should be Steve Buscemi and anything other than that is a complete failure of the wheel. <laughs> Wow. We would get to talk about that Seymour Cassell film again that we all loved and raved about. Uh, In the Soup. In the Soup. In the Soup. That was a goodie. Well, it sounds like either Buscemi or Michael Kenneth Williams are the two consensus picks here. But we don't decide. Sam doesn't decide, contrary to what I said earlier. Aubrey doesn't decide. Mark Yerke doesn't decide. The wheel decides. And we'll see what happens. Yerke. We always love having you on, my friend. This is our red carpet moment, as you know. Is the chance for you to share any projects you're working on or wise words for our audience. We always love having you. Gosh, I don't have any projects or wise words. I, I just want to thank you all for having me again. This is great. I want to plug Munson's at the movies. Like this is this is great. This is a joy. I just I love getting to spend time. And I just appreciate y'all doing what you're doing. So thanks again for having me. Thanks for coming on, man. You I always enjoy having you on. You're hilarious. Yeah, always a blast. Yeah, it's always fun. Always a great balance of funny and informative, my friend. Well, thanks. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> what? I'm just laughing. Just trying to be genuine. There was just that, oh, shocks, guys. Oh, oh golly, yeah. geez. Mr. Munson, <laughs> you are a genuine hero. As we wrap up, you can find us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can find us on X slash Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can... Shoot us an email, munsonsatthemovies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Natalie Portman? This is a culmination of my life's work so far. You know, we worked on it for two years before bringing it to the public. I used to be treated like I was a hero, and then they start talking about me like I'm trailer trash. But that's what this show is about. Munson's out. (sighs) All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? And do you find it difficult juggling kids in a career? You can juggle these nuts. What? I don't dance now, I make mommy moves. When I gave birth, I didn't even push. I was blazed out, smoking bomb kush. And when my water broke, you know it drowned the doctor.